Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Today's um, reading can be found on page 565 of your Pew Bibles, Psalm 116, verses 1 through 7. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I call on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. Good morning again, everyone. Good morning again, everyone. See, I'd like you to talk back to me. I want to make sure that you're out there. Our Old Testament reading is found in Pew Bible, page 658. Page 658. Say amen when you have found it. And it's Isaiah 30, verses 15 to 21. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Amen. People of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. You could turn to page 1069. Uh, New Testament reading is um, 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. Even if I caused you sorrow by my, le- by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you become sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly worldly sorrow brings death. This gospel reading is found in Pew Bible, page 891. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? 
Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with the water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with his fork in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So what do you do when you find that the sentiments of Scripture are harsher than your own? We'll see. We like to think of repentance as a radical sort of turning. And at some point in our lives, that's exactly what it is. And I don't want to give a lot of energy to the definitions here, but when we talk about repentance or conversion, there are those of us in this room who had that moment, that kind of, call it a Damascus Road moment, at that point in your life where you realized you were completely off course, you, your life was about the wrong things, and you cried out to God in that moment for a new direction. And you said, I need to go a different way. And you sought God's forgiveness and grace, and through his mercy began a different kind of journey. That is an incredible experience to go through, a wonderful thing. And there are probably just as many of you out there, maybe even more in this context, who never had that experience. You grew up in a house of faith. You were taught as a child the correct way to go, or at least your parents' version of the correct way to go. All right? How many can relate to that last comment? Therapy will commence in the fireside room following the service. $10, group thing, 45 minutes. Um, yeah, we, we, we have that. We were taught precepts and truths in Scripture. And unless we had taken a terrible diversion through some sort of unbelievable rebellion, uh, we found ourselves more or less on a path and a direction through, the most, uh, through most of our lives. We found ourselves needing to repent of our rebellions, of our individual sins and choices that took us the wrong, wrong directions. We found ourselves not perfect or without sin, but we found ourselves needing to confess those things uh, that had, had taken us off course or, or led us astray. But we never had that Damascus Road experience. Conversion for us uh, was the question of turning from what to what. It was really a, a lifelong journey toward a deep acquaintance with God and with His church and with following in that in one degree or another. And I do think that, that uh, life experience is such and, and the process of growing up is such in our human state, that we will take some diversions. There will be some deviations along the way. It's to be expected. What we want to try to do is make sure we're minimizing those and the damage that they cause to us physically and spiritually as we mature and go through life along the way. But now you're here. See? I'm preaching to the proverbial choir. 
You're here because you've either been converted or you want to be converted. You're here because you either had that Damascus Road experience and this is an extension of your life with Christ and God and His body, or you've grown up with a tradition. You've grown up with this as, as what you do. You've been given the way by virtue of a birthright and a blessing. And so we have those moments in our pastoral prayer times where we collectively, hopefully, are listening as we're led into a prayer of repentance, perhaps. When we seek God's forgiveness for those things we corporately are wrong in or societally are wrong in and participate in. Are those things we've individually done that have hurt ourselves, hurt others, or been an affront to God because of that. For most of us, and uh, you know, this is the beauty of today, for most of us, it's, it's about thinking differently than radical conversion and doing all of this all over again every time we, we come to a barrier in the road or have a major problem. It's about a course adjustment. So if that seems terribly obvious to you, and you've heard the text this morning, feel free to sneak out and grab an early lunch. Uh, you know, if, if you think there's more, more to understand here, stick around and let's look at these texts together. I want to start in the Isaiah text. Isaiah 30 was read for us so nicely. Thank you. Verse 15 tells most of our stories pretty well. I think it's a fabulous text and disturbing too. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. So, If you were confused about the source of this, it's the top. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Wow. You ever heard the passage, be still and know that I am God? In quietness and trust is your strength. <laughs> be still and know that I am God. Have you heard the passage, the battle is the Lord's? In quietness and trust is your strength. The battle is the Lord's. In repentance and rest is your salvation. Have you heard the text? For he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He moves our sins as far away from us as the east is and the west. East is from the west and buries them in the depths of the sea. And we break out the brass helmet with the thick glass and the diving suit and seek to find them all over again. 
over and over and over. We find them again as a dog returns to his own vomit. Are you familiar with that text? We have not only a propensity, but a sickness about us. We actually really like our sins. If we didn't, we wouldn't continue in them. They reward us in some kind of way. There is a pleasure or a gratification to be found in them. There is something about them that moves us, that compels us, that traps us into an addiction. There's something about it that we want to hang on to. It's rewarding. So when we confess our sins and we give them to God and we ask them to take them away from us, he's faithful. He moves them as far as the east is from the west, and that's pretty far. Buries them in the depths of the sea. Well, with increasing technologies, we're getting better and better at getting down there. But that is still the biggest frontier. We know more about the moon than we know the bottom of the ocean. But we put on the suit nonetheless and go salvage all that we can. Because we want to resurrect them. We want to revive them. We want to enjoy them once again. Anybody resemble those remarks? Don't raise your hands. It's a fact of our existence and a sorry one. Because the passage continues with, but you would have none of it. We also put on our diving bells and our suits and go get our sins back because there's a part of us, if we've been raised just right, that wants to beat ourselves up a little bit more. God in His grace and mercy hasn't quite been harsh enough with us. We need a little self-flagellation to go with all of that. We want them back because we want to carry them yet a little further. The release can't be that easy. It must come further down the road. And if you resemble that remark, I don't want you to raise your hand either. Do you know of what I speak? I'm going to send you home to watch the mission. If for no other reason, then there's a wonderful, and I've referred to this before, but it's worth repeating. There is a wonderful scene in which a man is carrying his burdens, in this case, armor and weaponry that he used to harm natives who lived in the Amazon jungle. He uses them, and he finally repents of this, puts them in a pack, and is carrying them up a waterfall. You see him slipping and grappling grasping at these slippery rocks and doing all he can to fight his way up. And it's an exhausting journey. And at any moment, that heavy burden is about to pull him back over the waterfall. And he's determined to carry this burden all the way, all the way up to the little cathedral in the, in the mountains. All the way up. And an Indian native, somebody that he used to be involved in slave trading, an Indian native, somebody whose people he had brought great harm to, rushes up with a knife as he comes up over the crest of the waterfall. And for a split moment, you're sure that he's going to be stabbed or his throat's going to be slit. For a split moment, you're sure that the moment of needed revenge has come. And trust me, if you're anything like me, you might even clap. He deserves it. In this moment, we can see vengeance taking place, and it is sweet because it is totally deserved. 
And this Indian cuts away the rope that ties the burden this man is carrying to him and it falls into the depths of the pool beneath the waterfall. And the release will make you weep. Some of us want to carry a burden. We want to drag it around. We want to do our penance. We want to punish ourselves. And God has rushed up and cut the burden away. And all we want to do is climb back down the waterfall and reattach it and drag it back up. Isaiah speaks it powerfully. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. We think Sabbath rest is about creation. It's also about deliverance. We think Sabbath rest is about resting from our labors. It is really about pausing and resting in the salvation that God hath wrought. It is about trusting that He is sufficient and our efforts are not needed. Only our participation and consent. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. No, you said. We will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. You said we will ride on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. I'm not a Hebrew expert, and I'm not really terribly clear on the original language here. But my best guess is that what he's trying to say is, you say, no, we're going to move out. And not only that, but quickly. But what you don't understand is that your pursuers will be even swifter. I think that would be a better translation. A thousand will flee at the threat of one and At the threat of five, you will all flee away till you're left alone, vulnerable, exposed, like a flagstaff on a mountaintop or a banner on a hill, without a people. Mercy. Yet the Lord God longs to be gracious to you. Therefore he will rise up and show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice and blessed are all those who wait for him. People of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be to you when you cry for help. For as soon as he hears, he will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the waters of affliction, though he tests you, Your teachers will be hidden no more, and with your own eyes you will see them. What do you think the teachers are here? Is it not these adversities and afflictions? These experiences? Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. It anticipates something really beautiful, doesn't it? Jesus said, I'm going away. I won't be here to give you instruction directly anymore, but I'm going to send a comforter. I'm going to send to you an advocate. And you'll hear this, this voice. It'll be this voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. 
We have no shortage of information, either about human nature or about the will of God. We have no shortage of confidence that Christ will do what he says and has done what he says, and that God and Christ and the Spirit are ours. We have no reason to doubt for a moment that if we'll but listen, the voice will be heard behind us saying, this is the way, walk in it. This is the essence of the new covenant. He promises to take his law and embed it within us. He's going to write his love on our hearts. He's going to do this because he no longer wants it to be a a sort of external contract or something that we have to manage and live up to. He wants it to be something that flows out of who we are in relationship to him. This is the way. Walk in it. So if, friends, we will engage this rest, this Sabbath rest, this rest that he talks about, if we'll trust, and so forth, our course is going to be set and sure And we may find ourselves turning to the right or to the left, but if we listen, we're going to hear that voice directing us. And so today I'm going to suggest to you that out of all the abundance that God has done for you, whether it's to appear to you on your own Damascus road and change the course of your life, or whether it's to continue to strive and work with you as a person raised in the context of faith, continuing to love you and bring you as close as he can to himself, In all of that, we need to trust. In all of that, we need to know that His Spirit is sure and that what we need along the way are little course corrections. Travis is not here today, but he worked on a project. All you know who Travis is? Travis Johnson is our administrative assistant. He worked for JPL on the Mars rover and particularly on the uh, mechanisms that allowed it to land on the planet. Many of you have read about that critical six minutes in which everybody was biting their nails. And you see this scene in the uh, JPL lab or in NASA, all the rejoicing that took place when it made it. I thought, you go, Travis, when it landed. That That was my rejoicing. I emailed him, congratulations, You did it. How cool is that? But he'll tell you that if the directional uh, piece was a tenth of a degree off, that landing would have never happened, and in fact the vehicle would have missed the planet by I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of miles. Just a fraction of a degree off. A little tiny course correction can make a huge difference in your life. Let's bring this down to money. Are you awake now? Everybody's tuned in now. Money, 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 money. I like money. Let's listen to money. We all know what the gurus say, right? If you can start saving at 20 or 25, it makes all the difference as opposed to starting to save at 30 or 35. But... If you've waited till 30 or 35, you're far better off to start saving at 30 or 35 than 40 or 45, etc., etc. If you're 65, you're better off starting to save than you were if you didn't start to save before 85. 
So it's never too late, but the numbers are exponentially bigger if you start younger. That $23,000 you invested between age 23 and 27, by the time you're retired, could be a couple of hundred thousand dollars. It's a lot of money. And little course corrections can make a big difference. The difference between your returns at 3.5% and 5% are enormous. The difference in your returns between 5 and 10% are, are even bigger, obviously. Little course corrections. And the more you make earlier on and the faster it grows, the more it's going to be later on, even with diminishing returns. So I'm going to suggest to you that in the spiritual life, it's not dissimilar. We just need to be conscious, listening, hearing that voice as we start to turn to the right or left, and to stay the course. Because the difference it will make in the life we live will be huge. The impact we have, the difference it makes, will be huge. The health with which we engage our families and our communities and our church, the difference will be huge. Just a little degree, a little course correction. You all know the definition of repent. It's an old-fashioned word, but it literally means to turn from. So... Little course correction is a type of repentance. Okay, you got a big sin in your life, confess it, deal with it, let God be working through you on that and with you on that sin. That's what he wants to do. That's a maybe a larger course correction that you need to engage in. I'm not here to tell you that some of you don't need larger course corrections. You might. But for most of us in this journey, it's just about kind of finding our way again. I mean, it's not a sin to be you know, kind of feeling like you're in the doldrums. It's not a sin. But why are you in the doldrums? What is it about your life that's keeping you from feeling the presence of God and the fullness and freeness that comes with that and being willing to pursue with the energy that he's given you and the grace that he's provided a course in life that's going to bring you some sense of purpose and fulfillment and joy and happiness. I mean, let me ask you this. If, just, if it were a choice between getting through life, just kind of getting through, surviving, and thriving, and it were really all up to you, wouldn't it be a sin just to survive life? Yes, no talk about money some more, I need to wake up again. It would, wouldn't it? Failure to thrive in the opportunity, when the opportunity is there to do so would be a sort of failure, wouldn't it? Kind of falling short. And yet, it isn't the difference between usually, I mean, let's, let's bring it back to money because it's as easy. A big sin would be never saving or investing, for example. But a little sin might have been buying GM stock a few years back before it went bankrupt as opposed to buying Apple stock, which has just done nothing but go up. Okay, But a course correction means you sell your junk stocks, your bad stuff, and you reinvest what you've got in something good. Now, I think GM is doing better, by the way. I just want to be clear about that. But um, you know what I'm saying? You're selling one thing, buying another. It's a course correction. 
I had to repent of some stocks I bought a while ago and buy something else. It wasn't doing anything. I don't have a lot of that, but you know, I'm, I'm here to tell you. Minor course correction, different outcome. We understand this financially, let's understand it spiritually. And that has to do with the fullness of our lives, doesn't it? How many of you think spirituality is just one dimension of human existence? It can be a dimension of human existence, but it is the pervasive element in what makes you human. So we don't have a, quote, secular experience and sacred experience. We journey before God in the fullness of sacred experience all the time. Whether we're playing football or basketball, whether we're making a lunch, whether we're engaging somebody at a coffee shop, whether we're praying with our children before bedtime, whether we're watching a movie, it all comes down to this overall experience of being spiritual beings created in the image of God for His pleasure, for interacting with Him and one another in love, and learning to do that well. The human journey is about learning to love as God loves. Anybody have a problem with that? That's what our call is. We get to learn to imitate the love of God. So maybe the course correction isn't about sin. I kind of want you to quit, not quit thinking about sin, but I don't want you to focus on sin. I'm going to expand on that and hopefully it will make sense to you. When we analyze our lives in terms of what we're doing wrong, we have no mechanisms for increasing or maximizing what we're doing right. And when we're trying to make something of our lives and gain a return on our lives, so to speak, what we really need to concentrate on is upping the return. Because our lives aren't just, believe it or not, before God, our lives aren't just defined by what we do wrong. And we do plenty of that. Our lives are defined in, in more holistic terms and in much larger terms. So when we take and all we can concentrate on is what we've done wrong and how we can quit doing wrong, we miss the opportunity to engage all that God has given us, all the graces that have come our way, all the tools for positive change and development. We miss the opportunities to engage the larger picture of the joy of life. So how does repentance work? You do need to take an inventory. Confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive you. Since that's what the word says. I'm not going to contramand that. Do it. And leave them at the bottom of the sea. Leave them as far as the east is from the west. Don't think about them anymore. Don't go back for them. And if possible, don't return to your own vomit like the dog does. You're, we're all doing it. We're all going to do it again. We all have our things that we just go back to again and again. But we're going to work on that. But what we concentrate on is not that. What we concentrate on is what Isaiah was saying God offers. In repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust. He's going to lead. He's going to provide. He's going to give us that voice behind us saying, this is the way, walk in it. 
He's going to direct your path. He's going to embed His Word and His law in your heart if you'll give it any time at all. You've got to give it some time, but He'll embed it there for you. Trust me in this. I speak not of my own experience, although that too, but of the experience of the Word and what it's sharing with all of us this morning. Our next passage, 2 Corinthians. Paul is doing something that doesn't translate well either. He's saying, look, you guys, I know you hurt you. I hurt you. And I'm sorry you were hurting, but I'm not really sorry. Because in the way you were hurting, and I know you're not hurting anymore, something good came of it. That's what Paul's saying. You ever said that to somebody? Oh, my wife thinks it's crazy. She married me for a reason. I've said that to somebody. Well, not exactly, but we've all had those things where we've done something we intended to do, and we knew that it might have a downside, but we knew that there was a larger upside. Is that a better way of saying it? Sure. I mean, parents, don't you just, don't you feel a little bad when you've disciplined your child? I mean, isn't that just a little hard? And yet, isn't it for the greater good? So you're sorry that they're sorry or hurting, but you're really not sorry because you need them to learn something and grow through it. Is that right? Yeah, so that's what Paul's doing here. He's just like a big dad. And we don't see him that way because he's so wordy and so complicated sometimes. And I know there are a lot of people who hate Paul, and and we need to work on that. And I do owe Peter an apology because, according to my friend Peter, I quoted Peter two weeks ago, was it? Last Sabbath. I'm reading along in Peter, and I say, and according to Paul, my friend Peter goes, wait a minute, isn't that Peter? Let's give Peter his due here. You know, Peter needs his day. It was Peter who said, yes, it was. So I'm here to apologize for slipping that up. But Paul here is uh, speaking, and he's, he's just kind of saying, look, I, I, I did this on purpose, and, and yet uh, and I'm sorry you were hurting, and yet I'm not, because it was for the greater good. And I, I want to rejoice over that. So once he gets through that, he says, For you became sorrowful as God intended and were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See, what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness and eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you've proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, I was neither, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we're encouraged. So Paul is rejoicing that the church has made a course correction, that it's found its way even though there was this difficult moment in the letter. I don't have, I do offer them from time to time. You may feel them or not feel them accordingly. Occasionally I offer our church, our church a course correction, but not very often. Paul is offering the early church a course correction, and it's that joy might be multiplied. It's that productivity might be multiplied. It's so that we can really experience life and life more abundant. And you see, you can never experience life and life more abundant when it's all about the sin. You know that, right? 
It can only be life and life more abundant when you're concentrating on the blessing and on doing what you were created to do, the purpose that God has for you, walking that path. And it's a little different for each of us, by the way. We're together because we share a common vision, a common belief system, common standards. We're together because we've uh, you know, come together as an assembly, as a group, as a church, and we declared openly our faith in Christ and these things. We're here together because we want to be in fellowship and in harmony. We want to uh, expand our own capabilities by serving one another in the world as a whole through our, our church. A host of reasons we're here together. But each of our journeys is somewhat unique. Each of our paths is specialized because we each have a set of, of circumstances and a story, a background. We each have a, a gift and a talent, a direction. We each have something different we're bringing to body. And our path is... But it's the same spirit. Same spirit that speaks. It's the same grace that forgives It's the same voice that says in repentance and rest, in quietness, in trust. Let God do this. Let God lead us. Let God direct us. He did in the early church, even the Corinthian church, and those folks were not easy, trust me. They were not easy. Matthew 3. Our gospel story has a harshness to it. But I want us to pay attention to this too. I'm going to read from chapter chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So here was a warning and a call. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. He went out, people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, these river rocks, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Reminds me of some of Jesus' words, doesn't it, in John 15. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John is saying to us very plainly, judgment day is coming. The wheat and the chaff will be separated. That which is grain and is productive and is good and has life within it is is there. Everything else is going to be burned. It's going to be separated. It's going to be taken away. John the Baptist 
is harsh with the Pharisees and Sadducees. He calls them a brood of vipers. He's harsh with them because he wants to see something happen. It's an old, you know, old truism. We want to know that the action follows the word. That if you talk the talk, you can walk the walk. And so course correction isn't just about a word of repentance. A course correction isn't just about saying you're sorry. A course correction is about living life, listening to that spirit. It's about a determination to change course, to turn from. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were checking out the latest thing, and it's conceivable that some of them were even asking for baptism or going through the motions of asking for forgiveness, not that they thought they had much to repent from. You see, what they were tempted to do, and this is why John the Baptist speaks to it and why Jesus speaks to it, they were tempted to think that they could be saved by virtue of their heritage. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And ever since then, they had all followed the sign of covenant and been a part of covenant. Why should they not be okay? But we don't inherit salvation from our parents. We don't inherit it from our church. We don't inherit right paths and true living from them either, per se. These are gifts from God. And the call and the challenge to each of us is that when we do hear the call to repent, when we know that we need to change something, when it's time for a course correction, to make it. To listen to that voice and stay on that path. Do what God calls us to do. Be the people that He's asked us to be. I'm not suggesting for a moment that you'll be perfect. But I am suggesting that a few degrees could land you nowhere near a landing on Mars. And in this journey, we all have to make course corrections. Power and glory do rest with you, Lord. May we rest in your glory and in your greatness this day. Amen.